You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. Well, friends, good morning again to you, uh, and welcome back for another week and what is our final week of our sermon series that we've been in ever since the beginning of the year, a sermon series you can see by way of the screens behind me entitled Reform, Reform. Uh, For the last several weeks, one of the things that we've been doing as a church is we've been revisiting all of the reforms that Jesus made to our faith. All the ways in which Jesus challenged us to reconsider and to uh, rethink the ways in which we uh, imagine God, imagine ourselves, imagine our neighbor, imagine our enemies. And the reason for which is because one of the things that uh, we here at The Peak are really, really passionate about is making sure that the Christianity that we practice actually looks like Jesus. Many of you, uh, you've come from other churches, you've had experiences of other churches where um, there are moments, several moments, where it's like, holy cow, this looks, smells, walks, talks just like Jesus. And there are also moments where it's like, huh, that Christianity doesn't really have Christ in it. And so the hope is that by revisiting these reforms that were just as relevant today as they were back then, we can make sure that the faith that we are practicing, the faith that we're embodying every day, embodies the likes of Jesus himself. If this is your first time tuning in, uh, either online uh, or here in person, and that sounds interesting to you, you're like, man, that sounds like a conversation I could really use in my spiritual life, I want to encourage you, you can find any of those sermons on either our YouTube page or on our podcast, so you can catch up and hear about the whole range of different reforms that Jesus made uh, during the course of his earthly ministry. But today what we're going to do is today, and I said this last week, today what I believe we did is we saved two of the most important reforms for last. Two of the most important reforms that Jesus made during the course of his earthly ministry, we've saved both for last week and for this week. In many ways, today is part two of last week's sermon. Last week we talked about the reforms, the different ways in which Jesus talked about how we ought to conceive of salvation. Now, Salvation is just churchy language for, you know, who's in, who's out, uh, who is saved, and who is not. Who's a real believer, and who is like, they faking it, you know what I'm saying? Today, we're going to sort of piggyback on that conversation. We're going to go a step further, and today we're going to talk about the reforms, uh, the teachings Jesus made in regards to the afterlife itself. So, What did Jesus actually have to say about heaven and hell? What did Jesus have to say about eternal life? What kind of picture did he draw of those realities? And the reason we need to take that up is because if you spent any time in church, you know there's a bunch of different opinions on what we think uh, heaven and hell are going to be like. For example, the Pew Research Center did a study a couple years ago, and they found when they polled Americans, so these are not just Christians, just Americans, they found that 72% of Americans believe in some version of heaven, some version of heaven, some version of an eternal paradise-like atmosphere, a reality that they're going to experience after death. What I found fascinating about that study, though, is that when they polled those same people, only 58% believe in hell. That's interesting. I wonder why that is. Hold on to that thought, because we're going to come back to that. We're going to come back to that. 
Last week we talked about this. Another thing that's, uh, in, that uh, the study found super interesting is so now you move from Americans to inside the church. When uh, folks inside the church were polled, uh, they found that when it came to the afterlife, when it came to heaven and hell, uh, actually more than half, so 60%, 60% of born-again Christians said that it is possible to find eternal life outside of Christianity. These are folks who they've lived enough life, they've, they've had enough encounters with people uh, outside the church to believe that, yes, Jesus is vividly and, and, and vitally at work inside the church, but also actively working to save and redeem and reach those children of his who had no other option than their being born into a Muslim family or an agnostic family or something like that. Jesus cares about them. Jesus loves them. What does it say? John 3.16, for God so loved the Christians? No, God so loved the world. Amen? This was really interesting. Uh, in that same study, uh, they, they, they pulled those Christians. They said, what are you looking forward to most uh, about heaven? And this is, what the, uh, this is what came back. The top result, uh, the top answer was freedom from suffering, looking forward to an existence where I don't have to deal with that anymore. 65% that thing they're looking forward to most is being, re- being reunited with a loved one, a parent or, or a spouse or a child. Uh, and then 60% said the thing they're looking forward to most was having a healthy body. I personally um, am hoping that in afterlife I get to uh, inhabit an existence like this. <laughs> it's only fair. It's only fair. He had it in this life. I get it in the next one. <laughs> Let that be seared into your imaginations for the remainder of the sermon today. But the point is this, and actually the reality is this. For all the opinions we have about what heaven and hell are going to be like, we have way more questions. Way more questions. Any honest Christian out there would admit that they got way more questions than they got answers as it pertains to this afterlife. In fact, uh, earlier this week I did an uh, Instagram poll just to kind of like see uh, what are some of the biggest questions people have. What are the biggest questions that you and I have about heaven, about hell, about this afterlife? And I took all of them, and I did some additional research as well, and I found that if you take all the questions that we have regarding heaven and hell, they could be categorized into these buckets, these buckets. Uh, Questions around who. We have questions around who is going to be there. We have a lot of questions around what. What are we going to do? Is there going to be yoga or extracurricular activities? Like, what's going to be, like, happening? Is there a schedule? I love schedules. When. When's it going to start? And then fourthly and finally, uh, I think a a lot of the questions could be categorized as a where question. Where is heaven? Where will it be? And so what I'm inviting you to, uh, what I'm inviting you into uh, this morning is yet another week, another practice of what I've been trying to invite you to and invite you into this entire time, which is today what I want to invite you to do is I want you to set aside all the things you've been told about heaven and hell. All the things you've been told by your parents, by that Sunday school teacher, by that pastor, by that crazy person on television. I want you to set all the things that you've heard about heaven and hell aside just for a moment, because today what I want us to do is the same thing we've been doing each and every week, is to not get rid of them, hold them, but to really search out to hear what Jesus has to say on these topics. What did Jesus actually have to say? What did he teach when it came to these realities? Sound good? Let's do it. Okay, so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, go ahead and uh, return to John chapter 1 for me. Or if you're tuning in online, you want to pull up a smart device and uh, access John chapter 1, follow along, you can do so now. 
to give you a little context uh, as to where we're starting today is I actually, so those questions that I just laid out for you, we're actually going to do them in inverse order. So I want to start with when. When will heaven take place? Because when you go back to our scripture passage for today, that seems to be what Jesus is trying to say. So to give us a little bit of context as to what's happening in John chapter 1, the passage that Abigail just read, is we're right at the beginning of his earthly ministry. We're right at the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry, and how he starts is by recruiting. He's recruiting disciples. He's recruiting these 12 dudes who are going to follow him around and sort of carry this mission forward after he is gone. And he says something really interesting really early on when he's recruiting people to be a part of this movement, when he's recruiting people to be a part of this kingdom work. He says this. He says, what I'm inviting you into, what I'm asking you to sign up for is something where you're going to see heaven open and God's angels going up to heaven and down to earth on the Son of Man. He sounds eerily similar to something he says in Luke. Luke chapter 17 where he says this. He says, the kingdom of God, it's here, baby. That's a Kyle translation. It's in your midst. So the first answer to the question, the first question of when, Jesus actually shocks all of his listeners by saying, guess what? It's already started. Heaven and hell, they've already started. It's already begun. It reminds me, actually, of something that uh, my first employer said to me. My first employer uh, saw the, just me being a little turd of a teenager and was like, hey, it's like eventually when you go on to other job interviews and you try to apply to other jobs, I want you to remember something, that your interview doesn't start when you sit down at the desk. It starts when you pull into the parking lot. And I always remember that advice. Your interview starts not when you sit down. But it starts the moment you pull into that parking lot, the interaction you had with the parking attendant or the housekeeper or the receptionist. The boss is going to ask those people, what what was it like interacting with this person? So you can't just sit down and go, hello, I am Frank Templeton, and um, I believe in integrity and honesty and just being genuinely kind. You can't say all that stuff and be a jerk all the elevator ride all the way up and expect to get the job. In many ways, I've thought about that so much, and I've thought about how it applies, I think, to the way in which afterlife and heaven and hell work, that they've already begun. They already started. They don't start at the interview. They've already begun. And this, again, this is a shock to our system, right, because both the first century audience and us today, still 2,000 years later, we still operate with a view of the afterlife chronologically that looks like this. We've got the present day, We've got the present life, and then afterlife starts on the other side of death. Death sort of shifts it, and then we move into a new realm. But over and over and over again, when Jesus talks about heaven and hell, he talks about it, and he draws a picture like this. These two realities are, they're coexisting. They're cohabiting this planet, this world, this life, right here, right now. Outside of scripture, outside of scripture, the book that easily had the, has, has had and continues to have the most influence upon my view of heaven and hell and the afterlife uh, was a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. Has anyone read uh, that book before? Okay, a couple of you. This book uh, is super fascinating. It's a fictional story meant, meant to depict uh, C.S. Lewis's interpretation of a lot of the scriptures and how they would actually pan out in the life to come. And he says this. 
He says, he says, both processes, so he's talking about heaven and hell as processes, both processes begin even before death. The good person's past begins to change so that his forgiven sins and remember sorrow takes on the quality of heaven. While the bad person's past already conforms to his badness and is filled only with dreariness. And this next line is the line that has haunted me ever since I ever first read this book. He says this. He says, that's why. That's why. At the end of all things, when the sun rises here and twilight turns to blackness down there, the blessed will say, we have never lived anywhere except heaven. And the lost will say, we were always in hell. And both will speak truly. What C.S. Lewis is doing here uh, is he's helping us understand something that actually every single one of you already understand. I'm willing to bet that if we had enough time, we went through the rows of chairs and talked to folks, you could share of numerous instances where you encountered heaven here. Relationships, experiences, uh, opportunities to serve a stranger or love an enemy. There's been moments in your life that have filled and they've, they've been filled with and they've felt like heaven. They filled you with joy, filled you with peace. And I'm also willing to bet that if we went through, every single one of you can also attest to experiences that felt like a living hell. And so, friends, it just seems to me like a much more helpful question. Instead of asking, when is heaven going to start? When is hell going to start? it seems a much more helpful question is which realm do I spend more time in? It seems like that's a filter you can now place over top of your life. Is this relationship I'm in over here, is it turning me into a more heavenly person or am I actually becoming someone that I hate? This job, Do I show up and do I feel like I'm being fulfilled? I'm using the gifts that God's giving me, the talents that God has given me? Or do I feel like every day I show up, part of me is dying inside? These habits and addictions that I've given my life over to, are they turning me into a more heavenly person or a more hellish person? These beliefs, these thoughts, this way of thinking about myself and about other people, is it making me look look more and more like Jesus? Or am I turning into someone that I don't even want to face in the mirror? Again, setting aside what everyone else has said, Jesus seems to be saying, heaven and hell have already begun. Which leads perfectly to the next question. Because the next question, if you're, again, we're moving backwards, was where? So where is heaven? Where, where are, like, so you talked about kind of chronologically, but like now, like geographically, Kyle, where are they going to be? Like, is heaven going to be like in the sky or in the clouds or at Oprah's house? Like where, where in sort of like the geographical map can we position and place those things? And this is probably not going to be a shock to you because building off of the when answer, Jesus also seems over and over and over again to be communicating and talking about heaven and hell, not as some otherworldly place, not somewhere different, but right here, right now. It's already started and it's here on earth. 
In addition to what Jesus says about uh, the sort of present reality of heaven, this also matches up with what we see in other places of the New Testament. Specifically, I'm thinking of Revelation chapter 21. Have you ever paid attention to the fact that in Revelation chapter 21, when it talks about the afterlife, when it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, have you ever paid attention to the fact that while we here in the church we always talk about, like, I can't wait to, like, we don't really say I can't wait to die, but when I die, I can't wait to go get zapped up to heaven. But if you actually pay attention, the scriptures actually paint a very different picture. It's actually going the opposite direction. Revelation chapter 21 says this. It says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. God's dwelling place is now here, here among mortals. In many ways, why we celebrate Christmas every year, the first time Jesus came, is because Jesus is going to come again. And the home is going to be here. Forever is going to be here. Eternal life is going to be here, right here. All of this is going to be revamped and renewed and reconciled into something much, much better. It's going to be here. And friends, if, if you actually pay attention, Jesus talks the same way about hell. He talks the same way about hell. I went back and did my research this week, and I looked at all the different instances, all the different words that Jesus uses that people nowadays say, oh, he was talking about hell. The first of which is Gehenna. Gehenna. This is a word that shows up in Jesus' language every once in a while. Matthew chapter 25, verse 29, Jesus says this, it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than your whole body be thrown into Gehenna. So it's how some people have translated that. as like, oh, he's talking about hell. He's talking about the bad place. However, did you know that Gehenna was actually a real place? That's what it looked like. It's the valley of Gehenna. It was right outside of Jerusalem. It's not much to look at because actually this place smelled really bad. No one hung out there, and they regularly burned trash there. Uh, I, I feel like, but with real, today's real estate market, all of the realtors are like, I could sell that for $400,000. Anyway, um, it's a real place. It's a real place. And so what Jesus is saying is he's saying when you live that way, like when you live and, and, you, and you, you live addicted to things and you, you practice selfishness and greed and all of those things that are contrary to the kingdom of God, he's saying it's like living there. It's like living in a place where no one wants to be. You're all by yourself surrounded by burning trash. That's the bed you're making when you live like that. He's talking about a real place. Another place that uh, people typically sort of ascribe, oh, Jesus must be talking about a fiery pit or something like that, is they'll say, Jesus will say things like, uh, you will live, when you live in a certain way, you're going towards a place of destruction. You'll be, you're, you're living in a place of destruction. But friends, if you read that on the surface, what is Jesus saying? He's saying what any healthy parent, what any loving parent would say. He's not saying, I'm going to destroy you. He's saying the way you're living, the way you're behaving is destructive. It's going to harm you, the people around you, and this world we're all sharing. Same thing applies for Hades. Another word that Jesus uses that we typically go, oh, he must be talking about hell, is the word Hades. But did you know that the Greek translation for Hades, some of the translations just literally translates as the grave. Again, almost as if Jesus is just saying, if you live that way, you behave this way, there's no future to it. He's not threatening to send us someplace. He's just pointing out the reality. You go down that path, you keep doing that, there ain't no future to it. No good future, at least. 
And so over and over again, I think one of the things that I think we as Christians have to do is pay very close attention to the pockets of heaven here on earth and the pockets of hell and the pockets of hell. I'll give you an example from my own life. The last several months, when I, the places that are the most hellish for me are when I find myself in a constant sort of like comparative mode. You've been there before? We are constantly comparing your life with other people, comparing your life with someone else and saying, look, well, I did the same thing. Why am I not as far along as that person? Or why didn't I get that? I did, the, I did all this right. Why don't I have a life that looks like that? When I live that way, in the constant comparison mode, I get filled with jealousy and envy. And when I get filled with jealousy and envy, I get filled with hatred and malice towards other people. And then slowly but surely, I look around, and I have now become the very version of myself that I've been doing everything in my power to not become. I am living in hell. And so maybe what Jesus is doing as it relates to heaven and hell, maybe we need to correct our language when it comes to sending people to this place or sending people to that place. Maybe who Jesus is is Jesus is the person who's constantly finding us in these pits of hell that we've dug for ourselves and inviting us into something different. Constantly inviting us into something different. So friends, in relation to the where, it's, again, it's already started, and it's, it's here. These realities are here, right here, right now. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Some of you are thinking, okay, 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 okay. I'm following you. I'm with you. I understand what you're doing, Kyle. You're trying to point out all the instances where Jesus was just sort of teaching us that heaven and hell are not static concepts. They're dynamic. They're not fixed. They're more sort of fluid. I get that. I understand that. However, it is also true that Jesus does seem to say that there will be like a, a new uh, era. There, like, there will be a time when he comes back and reigns forever, and it won't be as sort of fluid anymore. It won't be so dynamic anymore. Like, there will be a time when all of this life passes, and we enter into the new heavens and the new earth, and all of these sort of realities are now in existence. And so, like, I guess, Kyle, what I'm getting at is, like, so what is it going to be like then? Like, I hear you about this present life, but in the life to come, what is it going to be like? And so now we're moving into that third question of what? Like, what are we going to do? What's it going to be all about? Whenever we talk about this question, uh, I always think back to, so I didn't grow up in church as much, but when I was a young kid, we did go to church every once in a while. And this was almost always the most frequently asked question amongst like fourth and fifth grade boys. Like, what are we going to do in heaven? Like, what, what's going to happen? And like, I'm going to drive a Porsche and like, I'm going to drive a Honda Civic with like rims. And this is like Fast and Furious days. You always had that one kid who was like, bro, like, if there's no lacrosse, I'm not going, uh, sort of thing. <laughs> but I'll never forget, never forget. In the midst of this conversation, so my Sunday school teacher in fifth grade was a lady by the name of Miss Prim. And Miss Prim uh, was like, well, this is a really fascinating conversation, everybody. Um, but actually, if you want to know what we're going to do uh, in heaven, Scripture is actually really, really clear about this. Um, we're going to worship. Forever. And ever. 
And look, y'all don't have to admit it, I'll go first. That sounds miserable. <laughs> Number one, like I know myself well enough, like I don't have the vocal stamina for that. Like I got three songs in me and then I'm like, okay, we can pray now, okay. So I don't have the vocal stamina to do it forever. And secondly, like that's just gonna get real old real quick. One month ago, one month ago, I loved the Encanto soundtrack. Now, if I so much as hear one of you talk about Bruno, I swear I'll lose it. It was our wedding day. <sighs> so, what, what's, what gives? Does Jesus give us any hint? Does he give us any clue? And to be fair, uh, he actually doesn't. He actually doesn't. Nowhere in the Gospels do we find Jesus sort of sit everybody down and go, okay, so housing is going to look like this, and transportation is going to look like this, and, like, your extracurriculars are going to be over here. He never does that. But one of the things that uh, he does do is he shows us. He shows us what resurrected existence is going to look like. And if you want more of a fuller picture of this, go and read uh, John chapter 20 and 21. Because in John chapter 20 and 21, what we encounter is Jesus in his post-resurrection state. He was risen from the dead. He's not yet ascended into, the, ascended into heaven, ascended to be with the Father. But he's in his post-resurrected state. And for 50 days, this is where we get Pentecost from, by the way. For 50 days, Jesus walks around and visits people and teaches things and shows people stuff and mobilizes his apostles for the next era of the kingdom movement. And so during that 50 days, we see him do a lot of stuff that might signal for us what the heavenly existence is going to be like. So, for example, the first thing we see happen is he reunites with people. I think one of the things that we can uh, hedge a bet on is that one of the things that's going to be so beautiful, so wonderful about the heavenly existence is being reunited with people that we missed, that we lost, that haven't been with us for so long. Uh, we also, uh, I just, I want to put this in there because I was super pumped about it. Uh, we also see Jesus eat. He eats breakfast and he eats fish. And as someone who did a lot of time on the West Coast, like I'm going to make up for lost time and I'm going to be crushing a lot of In-N-Out Burger in the life to come. Only some of you get that, but I promise. Heaven. And a burger. But he eats. He also works. Check this out. In John chapter 20, verse 15, did you notice that when Mary first sees Jesus, she mistakes him for a gardener? He was working. He was making something new. He was participating in something that was life-giving to the world around him. Hopefully that's not the job that I'm given in the life to come. Otherwise, nobody's eating anything. But we're working. Fun. John chapter 21, verse 10. He, they're fishing. We also find them fishing in his post-resurrected state. Some of you love that. That is a social activity you enjoy because you love sitting out in the middle of a boat, uh, a, uh, sitting in a boat in the middle of a lake, not catching anything for hours on end. That actually sounds like uh, the other place for me. But for you, that sounds fun. And so I think there is going to be some sort of recreational activity, something where we're engaging and enjoying life. And finally, probably the most powerful picture we see in John chapter 20 verse, uh, through John chapter 21 is we watch Jesus reconcile. He reconciles with his beloved friend Peter, who he loves so, so much, but who just a couple of chapters earlier betrayed him and said he didn't even know him. 
And so it seems to me that what we can anticipate also is entering into the life to come and being reconciled with our enemies, the people we never saw eye to eye on, the people who harmed us and wounded us in some really, really deep, painful ways. And so as you can see via that list, some of that sounds good. Some of that sounds like really hard. And so the natural next question is like, what about those who don't want to do any of that? What happens to those in the life to come who don't want to participate in any of that stuff? And Kyle, this is the real question I'm trying to ask, which is, is God really going to do what some Christians seem to say he's going to do, which is at the, li- at the end of life to come, God is going to sort of have this character change and pivot and now turn into this vengeful and punitive and violent God and throw all unbelieving persons into a fiery pit for all of eternity? Like, is that really what's going to happen to everybody else? And I'm going to be super sensitive here because some of you, are, you think that because you've got people in your life for whom that is the biggest obstacle to faith. They get down with Jesus up until that point, and then they're like, yeah, I don't know. Doesn't seem like a very loving father to me. Doesn't seem like a very gracious or compassionate ending to the story to me. Or maybe that's you. Maybe you are someone who's tuning in online, or you are here in person, and you're here but there is a part of you that kind of like has like a foot kind of out the door because you're just like, I don't know, man. Like if they start doing that bipolar God thing where like he's really nice and then they flip it in one week, Kyle just does like a fire and brimstone situation, like we're grabbing the kids and getting the heck out of here. Grab the goldfish. They said that we could have those. So what is it? What is it? This is where I want to encourage you. Uh, this is where I want to encourage you to, to do your own work to do your own homework. Because for the longest time, uh, I was this. I, I, I had kind of like one foot in and one foot out because I love Jesus. I think Jesus is the most gracious, compassionate person I've ever met. He has changed my life forever. But I can't reconcile that ending to the story with that version of Jesus. And so what I did is I did my own homework. I did my own homework. I did what, exactly what I invited you to do. I set aside all the things that people told me about heaven and hell. And I did my own work and looked through the scriptures. I looked through the Old Testament. I looked at the New Testament. And you want to know what I found? More often than not, the God you're going to read about in this story is not a God who chooses to punish us for our sin, but more often than not, simply allows the effects of our sin to speak for themselves. It's not to say God never does this, but more often than not, what you find in this book is a God who, in response to our rebellion, in response to our unfaithfulness, in response to all of our sin, doesn't heap punishment on top of the effects of our sin, but allows our sin to be the punishment itself so as to get our attention. One of the passages of scripture that points to this that I go to every single time I feel like a really cruddy Christian. Whenever I feel like a really cruddy Christian, this is the passage I go to. It's Psalm 103, which I feel like encapsulates the gospel. It says, he, talking about God, God does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us accordingly to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. 
Friends, most of the time, God doesn't need to punish us for our sins because the sin is the punishment itself. It is the punishment itself. If you live a life of greed, it's a hellish existence. If you live a life of selfishness, it's a hellish existence. If you live a life hell-bent on violence and destruction, like what we're watching with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine right now, it's a hellish existence. It is the punishment. It is the punishment. I think one of the things, the fundamental changes that has happened to me the longer I walk with Jesus is the more and more I realize that hell is not a place that God sends us. It's a place sometimes we refuse to leave because we're so intoxicated and drunk off of all that it's done to us. And maybe in those moments, the only thing God can do is bang on the door trying to coax us out because at the end of the day, that's the only thing love can do. If God is love, the only thing love can do is invite you to come. You can't force its will, ever. The moment you force your love on someone, what word do we use for that? Assault. And God's incapable of doing that incapable of relating with us in that way. It's all close here. Kyle, you didn't answer all the questions. I know, I know. We're coming to the last one. Easily the most asked question I get over coffee or emails or uh, particularly from folks who uh, have no interest uh, in faith or religion whatsoever, it's the question of who. Okay, so given all those realities, given everything you just said, like who's going to be there? Who can we anticipate? Am I going to be there? Is this person going to be there? I don't know. Like, who is going to be there? And I want to say two things on that front. The first thing I want to say is uh, no one, and I repeat, no one can know with 100% certainty the answer to that question. And if you do encounter someone who claims they can know with 100% certainty who is here and who is there, most likely has manipulated the Christian faith into some simple Christian formula and equation that they can practice so as to control their own eternal destiny and never have to trust or rely upon the grace of God. But I digress. And the second thing I'll say is it seems to me when you go back to Jesus, when you go back to what he actually said and how he actually behaved with us, it seems that the answer to this question, the best, the clearest answer that we have to this question actually comes in Revelation. Jesus says at the very end of time, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, I'm going to stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. You want to know the best answer I got to that question of who? The best answer I got is it's whoever will let him in. It's whoever will let him in. Now, before you go, that feels like a little bit too simple. Like, that feels like an oversimplification of what's going on. Let us not forget how scary it is to let someone in. 
how vulnerable it feels to let someone. I always think of like the like home makeover shows and like Queer Eye and things like that. Like it always sounds awesome to have like your whole home transformed. But then Bobby comes in and he goes, this is great and wonderful, but we're going to throw all of it away. Because it's all garbage. I don't think Jesus deals with us in that particular way, but I do think that anyone who dares, dares to let Jesus in, you better be prepared to have your worldview flipped upside down, your beliefs shifted around, called out on, hey, actually this action, this behavior, this addiction that you're participating in, it's actually super destructive. I know you didn't know that, but it actually is really, really harmful, and I'm going to need you to shift. I'm going to need you to change. I'm going to invite you to a different and a better way. And when you couch it in that way, when you frame it in that way, it makes sense. Because some people are not ready for that level of vulnerability yet. Some people might never be ready. And this is where, again, go one more time back to C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. One of the most powerful images of the entire book for me was when he painted this picture. He says, after I've observed everything I know about Jesus and the way in which Jesus talks and the way in which he preaches and the way in which he interacts with his children, it seems super crystal clear to me that hell is not a place whose gates are locked from the outside. It's a place whose gates are locked from the inside. It's a place where people don't want the type of life, the type of beliefs, the values that Jesus championed. And so they stay, and they don't let him in. And so, friends, if you don't hear anything else I say to you today, please hear this. I think that the single most important question as it relates to heaven and hell and the afterlife, all of it, is not, okay, how many good things did you do versus how many bad things did you do? It's not, okay, which denomination were you a part of versus not? Like, did you believe the right things or not believe the right things? What religion were you a part of? Like, I don't, I don't think those are going to be the questions Jesus asks me when I pass from this life to the next. I think the only question Jesus is going to ask me is what do you want? No, 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 no. Like, what do you really, really want? If it's me, learning how to love your enemies, accepting that my uh, sociological order is going to be one where the first become last and last become first, where I'm going to uh, tell you all the time to demonstrate radical and crazy forgiveness for other people. Like, if it's me, come. And I'll love the hell out of you. Thank you for listening to the Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.